0: Rant. I'm Lena, and welcome to history honeys the
1: podcast where married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past
0: Happy St. Patrick's Day everybody
1: and happy Illinois primary.
0: That's true L- And I- other
1: states too. I don't know what ones
0: Arizona, Ohio and Florida as well Ah, But we're, we're not gonna talk about those We're not instead. We're gonna talk about the other thing the Saints thing Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the, not, not the football team.
1: The Patrick's one?
0: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Him and all his friends.
1: Oh, yeah. Got a lot of friends. Got a posse. <laughs> the posse of saints.
0: Hundreds and hundreds of them. Yes. See the, the saints are an aspect of Roman Catholicism that I've always been curious about. So I mean, seeing where this episode landed, I decided to just educate myself and then share what I've learned with the class. Oh, yeah
1: yeah I know nothing about
0: <laughs> yeah
1: yep I mean I know they exist did mm-hmm. you know they're there
0: yes that's about it and and what church were you raised in dear
1: Roman Catholic Church okay cool cool <laughs> but like loosely okay. like we went for like Easter someone died maybe.
0: One thing that immediately jumped out at me that that I was surprised is that saints as we know them are a surprisingly recent thing. So we're going to be talking exclusively about saints and sainthood in the context of the Roman Catholic Church, though, of course, saints are present and and have their own history in uh, the Eastern Orthodox tradition. Several Protestant denominations uh, uh, recognize saints. Uh, There there are many saints in Islam— Lots of religions of the world have their own saint-like figures whose title is often translated to saint when we talk about them in English. Okay. But we're just talking about the one case today. Okay. Not not I, I'm not trying to, to say they don't exist. I'm acknowledging them. It's just we're not going to be talking about them beyond this disclaimer.
1: Too too many saints.
0: Too many saints. Gotta
1: narrow it down. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Maybe another day. So let's start at the top. What is a saint?
1: Someone who is recognized for doing something saintly.
0: L- like?
1: Didn't St. Patrick, like, get snakes out of Ireland or something?
0: He is credited with removing all the snakes from Ireland. I don't
1: know if that's actually why he got, like, a sainthood. <laughs> I feel like a lot of times it's like, oh, this person, like, was very religious and they, like, saw Jesus in their life. Mm-hmm. Like, Jesus in a pancake. Now <laughs> you're a saint. Not like that because it wasn't pancakes then, but like Jesus right. in a tree.
0: It was it was Johnny cakes. It was in the olden days. Yeah, yeah.
1: I could be really wrong, and someone's totally offended right now.
0: Yeah, you could be. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but in in the Roman Catholic Church, when a figure is named a saint, that that just means a few simple things. First, that they are in heaven.
1: Oh, they've confirmed. They they called them up. Yes. Like, hey, this person went there, right?
0: Uh, that they can be invoked in the liturgy. You you can talk about them in your services. Okay. Uh, and that they may be called on as an advocate. When people pray to saints, there you go. You, they are eligible to be prayed to. Okay. That's it. That's all it really means.
1: Oh, I thought you were going for, like, what they have to do to become one.
0: And we'll talk about that now. Okay. The the How that happens, how you get to be a saint, is a process called canonization. Okay. So, currently uh mm-hmm. There is a bureaucratic process for the canon for the canonization of new saints uh the bishop with jurisdiction over the person in question gives permission for them to be investigated that jurisdiction is usually uh the the bishop of the uh diocese where this person died mm-hmm The investigation involves taking eyewitness accounts of of their life and their deeds, studying all all of the writing they produced in their life to to sort of get at the person there, and assembling a very detailed biography from all these sources. Mm -hmm. And once enough evidence has been collected, a recommendation is made to the Pope to proclaim their heroic virtue and giving them the title Venerable. Okay. Okay. Then we move on to beatification, which is when the church says that it is worthy of belief that the venerable is in heaven. So once you're at the venerable stage, you have to have a a verified miracle or be recognized as a martyr in order to be beatified. Mm -hmm. And then that gives the the person the title blessed. Okay. And once someone is beatified, once they are the blessed so-and-so, uh, they can be canonized, which requires at least one further miracle after that. Okay. Then then you are saint so-and-so.
1: I think the weird part about this is, like, we need to get all this evidence to say, yeah, they're probably in heaven. Mm-hmm. What do they think about everyone else then?
0: That, I mean, <laughs> that that's between you and, and Jesus. Uh-huh. All of this evidence is what lets us earthly people say with confidence that they are in heaven up until the point where the Pope gets involved, where uh, in these matters the Pope is infallible, so you can know with certainty. Okay. Uh, Of course, that is the current process, and even then there are exceptions, which we will be getting to, of course. So let's talk about how we got there with the earliest saints of all. Okay. The church martyrs. Mm Mm-hmm. Being a, a Christian in, in the early days of Christianity, you know, in the Roman Empire, was rough. Mm-hmm. People got executed in a whole wide array of, of gruesome and, frankly, creative ways. Yeah. I mean, the, Gotta the,
1: keep it interesting.
0: These are the days of Christians being fed to lions, and frankly, that's boring compared to what they did to some of them. Yeah. Uh, so those who did die for their faith, or, or choose to die rather than recant their faith, were inspirations to the early Christians. Inspirations not not only in the the strength of their faith, but also the, these are underground persecuted communities. If they didn't give up, that means they didn't snitch. They kept everybody else safe. Mm-hmm. Underground congregations would gather to share the sacraments where the martyrs were killed or buried, and the days of their martyrdom were recorded and commemorated. These are the first, like, feast days, Mm -hmm. or what would become the feast days of these saints. Yes. So that gave rise to a a genre of literature uh, that we call martyrologies. Ooh. Uh, the, The literature surrounding these martyrs became a part of church history and sacred tradition. The first surviving Roman martyrology is the *Despositio Martyrum, a list of martyrs and their festival days from the year 354, which is at the root of the Roman martyrology, the big list of all recognized martyrs.
1: I like, I like that title. Yeah. The big list.
0: That, that one's not official. That's all I mean.
1: It should be. Okay. It should be official.
0: So in the 700s, writers started including accounts of the lives of the martyrs in their martyrologies, not, not just lists of days.
1: You know, it's probably helpful.
0: Yeah, it took them about 400 years. <laughs> 400 years from it's, the earliest surviving one, not the earliest made one. It's
1: a lot of biographies to write. Mm-hmm. They wanted to have them all done first.
0: And and this new, I guess, subgenre it was the historical martyrology.
2: Because
0: mm-hmm. it includes the histories of their lives. Uh, The first one we know of is from an English monk named uh, Bede, or Bede, B-E-D-E. I'm not sure how you say that in uh, 700 or so English. Uh. Uh, He is also considered the popularizer of the A.D. dating system. He's the reason we have the calendar we have. Yeah. He didn't invent it, but again, he popularized it at a time when Most dating systems were, you know, in the third year of this ruler, this battle occurred against this other ruler. So if you're following their books, it's in the 16th year because, you know, it's not like they were uh, coronated at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Now we've got one uh, uh, date for everybody or at least everybody in Christendom, which went on to be very influential. Uh Uh-huh. But, of course, I'm sure you're thinking – I, I can name many saints, and they weren't all killed by some Roman governor or other. Mm-hmm. There are also the confessors of the faith, a, a different sort of stream of sainthood. Okay. Now we're talking about a time when, when Christianity was the dominant faith. Uh, new martyrs were in shorter supply.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: E- evangelists were going out and, and being struck down by heathens, but, I mean, the emperor's a Christian now, so, like... Meh, nah, it's not that big a deal. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's what happens when you mess with your supply.
0: So in the 4th century, not long after Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity, members of the faith began venerating people who lived especially pious lives, regardless of how they died. Okay. These were called confessors because their acts confessed their faith in Christ. Ah. Now, Talking about old history means old definitions of words that are preserved, like, in amber as they become part of of church tradition. Mm -hmm. So, like, we we get to see in this case and and a lot of other examples through this episode the way etymology is like a time machine. Uh Uh-huh. So when we say confessor of the faith, we don't mean anything related to snitching. No. No. What do we mean? We, We mean it more like professing you know okay. de- declaring yeah a- as an example in fact the-, the title confessor of the faith was originally for those who were persecuted imprisoned or tortured for their faith but not up to the point of death okay almost martyrs yeah but then it was often to you know people who lead like i said especially pious especially holy lives uh confessors had their tombs honored just as the martyrs before them had, and they filled the same role as inspirational figures and role models in a more peaceful, a more stable church. Mm-hmm. So local bishops had the power to declare someone a confessor. Uh, sacred tradition said being martyred guaranteed a place in heaven. Uh, the approval of a bishop was needed to be certain someone who died peacefully had achieved the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, the veneration of these figures uh, was called their cultus, a Latin word that uh, in this use is more closely related to cultivate than the modern idea of a cult, mm-hmm. though it is the root word of both. <laughs> yeah. The cultus was just the practice of venerating, honoring uh, a saint. It, it didn't mean you were part of – and people would say that, you know, you were part of the cult of Saint, I don't know, Cuthbert. <laughs> <laughs> that's a real name that's a real saint I,
1: okay well it made me laugh though because that's Anne shirley cuthbert ah, her man of green gables there you go. it's their it's their last name that she's adopted into it made me laugh <laughs> so i'm like yeah marilla cuthbert is a saint mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yep i agree
0: so so while you would be part of the cult, it didn't mean, you know, spooky robes. It it just meant that you recognized the holiness of this person and uh you, you honored their memory. Mm-hmm. Now, if a figure was popular enough outside the bishop's jurisdiction, other bishops would often just accept their cultists. Like uh it, it wasn't automatic. But it was rarely worth risking a schism over. P- people didn't want to beef about it. Yeah. You know, like, oh, you you say that they're on the up and up? Well, you know, makes sense to me. It's fine. You you can venerate them here in this diocese as well. Whatever. Yeah. Confessors and martyrs were called holy. Of course, they weren't called holy. They they used the Latin word, mm-hmm. sanctus. Mm. Uh, so that became their title. And eventually the English word saint, which was ah. then regarded as a noun. You you weren't the sanctified, whatever, you were just a saint. That's a noun now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, this helps us bring in other figures that were venerated and, and known to be in heaven and also called holy, but weren't necessarily martyrs or confessors of the faith. That's why the contemporary category of saint also includes biblical figures, you know, like the angels, the apostles, the, the Old Testament patriarchs. Mm-hmm. St. Mary was not tortured and executed by the Roman authorities, but no. she's still a saint. Yeah. Through this other path. So now that we've got a few different paths to sainthood and a whole lot more saints as the, the uh, centuries continue, let's talk about hagiography, books on the lives and the miracles of the saints. Okay. This is a much more general term of which martyrology can be considered a part. hmm Uh, It it was the dominant form of narrative literature in medieval Christendom. Okay. If you were going to read a story about someone, it was very, very probably a hagiography. Now, I say narrative that should not be confused with fiction. The point was to present a true and accurate history, as the tellers saw it, of the lives of the saints. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stories are meant to measure the saints against the example of Christ, and then for believers to measure themselves in turn against the life of the saint.
1: Ooh. That's that's a high bar. It is. It is. Yeah.
0: And and but if they can do it, you can do it. They cannot be perfect because they are but human. But they can get as close as a person can be. So there's your role model right there. Mm-hmm. The the hagiographies that we have are a major source of knowledge on what ancient and medieval life was like, uh, both in the writers' descriptions of their subjects, but also what. You know, the the writers and the editors revealed about their own times through their work. Mm -hmm. Now, there are often large gaps between the life of a saint and their earliest hagiographies, which suggest that they were shaped in an oral tradition before someone was moved to actually write them down. Yeah. And that can be the source of a few things that we see studying these books, uh, like conflations of figures, different saints with the same name uh, trading stories between them, Mm -hmm. uh, or recurring archetypes and situations, uh, and new stories being added by later writers without clear sources behind these additions. Yeah. So let's take the man of the day as an example. Let's talk about some hagiographies of St. Patrick. Okay, He was a historical figure of the 5th century. Two of his writings remain to this day, one of which was an autobiography. Mm-hmm. So we, we know a certain amount about the life of St. Patrick. Now, his oldest surviving hagiographies are both from the 7th century, both likely to be based on the same lost 6th century source.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Both are argued to have been propaganda advocating the power of the church that Patrick had founded in Armagh, uh, over other congregations and also the secular powers of the day in 7th century Ireland. Mm-hmm. There there are also people who argue they were uh, propaganda for a further advancement of conversion through supersession, the, the process by which non-Christians are shown that Christians can do what their gods do, what their traditions do, even better. Mm-hmm. So uh, these hagiographies, from this perspective, present uh, uh, Patrick as... Like the druids, but better. Mm -hmm. The the super druid that shows the the truth of the message of Christ. Ah. Now, in his own writing, Patrick claimed to have raised the dead. There is a 12th century hagiography that claims he raised 33 people from the dead. Oh, wow. We we see how these things over the centuries uh, grow and develop. Yeah. Uh, The first writing about him banishing the snakes from Ireland was from the 13th century. Mm-hmm. Uh Saint Columba, a, a second patron saint of Ireland, there are three, uh was said to have done so around the turn of the eighth century. Mm-hmm. There there is a chance that uh the Patrick cultists snatched up uh this bit from you know the veneration of Saint Columba yeah. and added it to his story. So it's
1: all a lie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, There are pre-Christian legends about why there are no snakes in Ireland dating back to the third century, and the fossil record and herpetologists have their own theories, to be sure. Yeah. Yeah. But when you think about saints, especially as a non-Catholic thinking about Catholic saints, Mm -hmm. I think what comes to mind for a lot of people is patronage, the patron saints.
1: Patron saint of lost causes, the patron saint of animals.
0: Or the three patron saints of Ireland, like I just mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. The roots go all the way back. Let's wind the clock again to those Uh, Roman uh, days uh. of persecution, the first centuries of of Christianity. Now, congregations, like I said, would gather at a place significant to a martyr, usually the place of their burial. So once permanent churches could be built, once peace was brought to the church, as as, uh, Catholics like to say about uh, uh, Emperor Constantine, the congregation stayed in the same place they, they would just build their church on a martyr's grave and dedicate the building to their name mm-hmm. so the martyr became patron of the parish pa- patron in the sense of namesake mm-hmm. and they would also be an advocate for the people who gathered there yeah uh, many churches named for saints especially old ones are placed where they died like let's let's take the biggest example St Peter's Basilica mhm Right there in the, the Vatican complex, is built on the grounds of what was once a Roman circus, where many Christians were, were persecuted and killed. And the altar of St. Peter's Basilica is in the exact place as St. Peter's execution. Mm-hmm. So as the church grew and spread, church buildings would carry the tradition in new ways. Some were named for their founders once they had become saints. Uh Or some were named for a saint that whoever did found that church building was was personally dedicated to, a a real, like, believer in. Uh, Some congregations had the wealth and or influence to acquire a saint's relics, and that saint would then become the patron of that church Uh where their relics are held. The the patron's place as advocate wasn't limited to the church, though, but spread to the greater community. And the more popular the saint, the larger their patronage was recognized. So as populations moved across the world, uh, they took their saints with them. And that is how Patrick went from one of the patron saints of Ireland to the patron saint of the Irish, Mm -hmm. particularly Irish Americans. Yes. Yeah. Another way this worked is, you know, from their earliest veneration, of course, saints were tied to days of the calendar. Uh-huh. The, the days of their martyrdom in, in many cases, right? Yeah. So Spanish colonists would name places for the saint honored on the day that they found the thing they were naming. Yeah. For example, the San Antonio River was named by the Spanish because they found it—well, found it. Uh, they
1: <laughs> found it, loosely.
0: Yeah. On the feast day of St. Anthony. Yeah. So that is why the river is named San An- the San Antonio River. The city of San Antonio took its name from the river it's on. There you go. Mm-hmm. It, it all goes back to the, the feast of St. Anthony. But, of course, saints had, had fuller lives than just, than just dying on a certain day in a certain place. Yeah. As, of course, the, the hagiography literature will show. So they became associated with other things. By the Middle Ages, there was a whole ecosystem of saints being invoked by believers, each for their own sphere of special influence that was tied to something about their lives, not just their deaths. So St. Joseph, we have a named carpenter in the Bible, patron saint of carpenters. Makes perfect sense. Yep. What uh, does th-
1: he really hate in
0: carpentry? <laughs> well, he should have found a different job. <laughs> Uh, A saint that was afflicted with a disease in life could be trusted as an advocate for for other sufferers. Mm -hmm. Or if a saint's uh, attributed miracles involved curing a certain disease, they would be the patron saint uh, against that disease. Yeah. Uh, Any detail in their life could become a realm of patronage, which could in turn inspire another beyond it as, you know, times change. Yeah. Uh, for example, St. Francis of Assisi was known to love animals. He became the patron saint of animals. Yeah. And as one of the most popular saints, that patronage of animals in turn became, he in turn became the patron saint of ecologists. Mm-hmm. One thing building on another.
1: When churches do, like, the animal blessings, is that on, like, the Feast of St. Francis?
0: That's something that is reasonably likely. I don't know, but that sounds v- more than plausible. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> There's going to be someone who's like, what are you talking about? Blessing the animal, that's a thing. That's a thing. Just like blessing the basket's a thing. <laughs> There's a lot of blessing of stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so while we check on that, we're going to take a quick break and be back with some more facts and history. Okay. To get us back up to the present day. Welcome back, everybody. Hello. Yes, indeed. The the Catholic blessing of pets is scheduled on, or at least near, October 4th, the feast day of St. Francis. Yes. Good job.
1: I knew something.
0: (laughs) So we've got saints of all kinds now, but they're all local. The saints of each diocese are their own. Yes. This begins to change with St. Ulrich of Augsburg. Yeah. Yeah. St. Ulrich was himself a bishop for nearly 50 years and known for his high moral standards. hmm he, he was a reformer, you know. He passed away during Mass shortly after receiving the news of his forgiveness for nepotism, having gotten his nephew installed as his successor as bishop. Uh-huh. uh The Holy Roman Emperor Otto III petitioned Pope John the Fifteenth to canonize him in the year 993, only 20 years after his death. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it worked, for one, which is Ooh. why he is St. Ulrich. And for the curious, St. Ulrich is the patron saint of happy deaths, pregnant women, and against rodents. Why? Happy deaths, because he died during mass, uh, e- experiencing forgiveness. Uh-huh. Pregnant women, because uh, the the um, miracles attributed to him after his death include uh, helping women uh, with difficult pregnancies, uh, give birth to to healthy children and, and survive their difficult labors, mm-hmm. and it is said that uh, dirt from his grave can ward off mice and and voles. Oh man! So he's the patron saint against rodents.
1: Okay, they just take inspiration from anywhere.
0: With the pope and not the local bishop canonizing canonizing Saint Ulrich, that changes things because the pope bo- because the pope is the authority for the entire church. This made him a. Uh, a saint for all of Roman Catholicism. Yeah. I mean, some saints were already, of course, universally recognized, but Ulrich was the first for many, many centuries. Mm-hmm. So this began a struggle within the church over who had the authority to canonize saints. Uh, many bishops, of course, wanted to maintain their old rights and privileges. That's our job. Don't take our job. Uh-huh. While popes were being petitioned more and more often to declare saints— And then wanted the exclusive power to keep the process under control. Yeah. I mean, maintaining the system as is, you know, the pope doing some, but bishops doing most would mean that some saints are only venerated in one area, others everywhere. But sainthood, of course, all that it strictly means is that the person is in heaven and there's only one heaven. There's not one heaven for this diocese and one heaven for this one. Like, it's an unstable system.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Got to unify,
0: and in most disputes where uh it's over who gets authority, the winner is the one who already has the most authority, yeah, so the last saint in the Western Church declared by an authority other than the Pope was St Walter of Pontoise.
1: i've never heard of this
0: one uh, He was canonized by the Archbishop of Rouen in the year eleven fifty three so so this unstable two tiered system. Didn't last very long in church history terms. Yeah. Less than 200 years. Yeah. Now, St. Walter had has just a life that I loved as well, so let's go into a little sidebar on him. Okay. Uh, he was made in, into the abbot of his abbey uh, by a king against his will. Okay. Uh, he tried to quit. He tried to run away several times, uh, once trying to hand-deliver his resignation to the Pope, who instead said, go back to your abbey and do your job with honor and faith, my son.
2: Mm. Uh,
0: that that was Pope Gregory the Seventh. for the curious. He is famed for his work against corruption among the Benedictine order and also being beaten and jailed for his work against corruption among the Benedictine order.
1: Oh, I can't imagine who beat him and jailed him.
0: Uh, he is the patron saint against work-related stress.
1: Okay. <laughs> wow. Didn't know there was one of those.
0: So any believers in the saints who are having a rough time with their job are, fe- are free to invoke St. Walter.
1: Well, I love that he's St. Walter and not like...
0: I think they go with St. Walter of uh, Pontoise. Because, again, there are so many saints. Yeah. There, there's probably a few Walters in there.
1: I just like the idea of my good buddy, St. Walter.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He got me yep. in this time of stress.
0: They'll know which ones you mean. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. I should clarify what, you know, praying to a saint means in Catholic, in Catholic doctrine. Okay. The saints don't fix your problems. Uh, Christ is the intercessor between humanity and God. The, the saint's job is to be a, uh, an advocate so when you pray to the saints, they aren't talking to God for you. Instead, they are praying alongside you for what you need.
1: Okay, so they're giving your, like, tweet a retweet.
0: Yes, but because they are saints, because they are in heaven, because they do not have fallible flesh bodies anymore, they're doing it 24-7 day and night. They don't need to eat, they don't need to sleep, and they're already there in heaven.
1: That so, is not what they signed up for when going to heaven. So They were supposed to chill.
0: So while uh, you can have an advocate of a priest, you can have an advocate of anyone in your congregation also helping you in your time of need by by praying for relief. If the saint is praying for you, that is especially effective because of their position as a saint.
1: And that's why people like light candles for specific saints.
0: Right. Yeah. People venerate them in many, many ways across many traditions. Yeah. Uh, which is why the candles are most likely to be found in the the uh, Hispanic food section of the grocery store.
1: That's usually where they are, yes. Yes.
0: <sighs> right right by the Joritos.
1: Yes. Yeah. Except at Meyer where they just have them in the decorative candle section. <laughs>
0: <laughs> While St. Walter was the last to be uh, uh, canonized by a regular bishop <laughs> or archbishop, as opposed to the Bishop of Rome, His Holiness the Pope. Mm-hmm. It still wasn't official official until Pope Alexander III made a decree in 1170 that said that no saint could be venerated without his authority, without the authority of the greater church. Uh-huh. No matter how many miracles were wrought through that saint. And that decree was part of his, like, argument against canonizing a man killed in a drunken fight from becoming a saint. Ah. Uh. This this is disqualifying. You you cannot do such a thing. And if you do such a thing, you're wrong. We will overrule you because you can't do it without our authority. And our authority says nobody killed in a drunken fight gets to be a saint. Okay. This was codified in a papal bull issued by Pope Innocent III, uh 30 years later in the year 1200. A papal bull that also served to canonize Saint uh, Cunegund of Luxembourg. Cunegund? I'm not sure how to pronounce her name, frankly. She is the patron saint of Luxembourg. Uh, she was the, the wife of the Holy Roman Emperor in her time, or even the widow of the Holy Roman Emperor. And after uh, he passed away, she went to, to uh, she retired to an abbey and became, you know, a, a holy woman and eventually a saint. Mm-hmm. Also, her patronages are a little less in- interesting. Mostly, the patron saint of Luxembourg. Oh,
2: yeah. yeah.
0: Not as much fun as against rodents. So, Give it
1: time. They'll come up with something.
0: So bishops continue to practice beatification, not not quite canonization, not quite sainthood, but still recognizing they, they are worthy of a degree of veneration. Mm-hmm. Up until Pope Urban VII reserved that for the papacy as well. Yeah. So that brings us closer to our current form of saintly bureaucracy. <laughs> uh-huh. Which is why I say that saints as we recognize them, saints declared by the Pope, are a relatively recent thing. Yeah. That didn't start happening until around medieval times. Which which is why when you look at, okay, how did St. Patrick become a saint who said, no Pope said so.
1: He He was just, that was it.
0: Yeah. He, yeah, he was canonized by a, a local bishop, and then because his cultus was so popular, everyone just accepted it as so.
1: And now he gets a whole day in a parade.
0: And now he—I mean, Saint Valentine, the same. Pre no parade. Pre dating, yeah, no parade. But what But of, his
1: holiday wasn't canceled but, this year.
0: <laughs> a, a, a saint so popular among even outside the church that their feast day is a recognized now highly commercialized holiday. Yes. But not actually canonized by any sitting pope because, you know, his life predates that. Yeah. So now we we come to the Renaissance, the Reformation, the 1500s and beyond. Okay. This period caused a lot of big, big changes in the church, including the foundation of the Jesuit order. Okay. Now the Jesuits were a, a an order like you know the Franciscans, like the Benedictines. They they were an order of, of monks and priests. But they were dedicated to education and missionary work. They founded schools and they made sure that their priests were highly educated in the classics and in, you know, humanist works of of, uh, philosophy that were all the rage in these years. Yeah, they Uh, were
1: the hip ones. Mm
0: hmm. Jesuit schools became the predecessors to the idea of liberal education, having a foundation in in a a wide variety of disciplines, Mm -hmm. being well-rounded. Yes. Their whole deal was to win souls through facts and logic. Pretty much any time... People talk about how, oh, this science or or this philosophy was founded or or really advanced by a a priest. Yeah. Take a look at the years.
1: And it was probably them. And,
0: And if it's after the 1500s, it's very, very probably a Jesuit priest. Yeah. Pope Francis, the current pope, first Jesuit pope. Oh, so they they finally hit the big leagues. Yeah. As well as being uh first uh one from the Americas, first from the southern hemisphere, first outside of Europe except for that one uh North African pope in like the 600s.
1: Did they all like all the Jesuits like high five like yes, we made it. <laughs>
0: Probably. <laughs> so in 1603, one of these Jesuit priests was, was named uh Heribert Rosweide.
1: Wow. That's that's a name. <laughs>
0: Uh he began a project to copy hagiography in their original forms removing revisions of later editors uh-huh. right just, just a, a big work of of restoration of the true history okay because you know that that's their deal mhm uh he he laid out his goals and plans and published one volume on uh the desert ascetics and desert monks in his spare time called the vitae patrum the lives of the fathers okay now, with the Vitae as a proof of concept, the work was taken and expanded upon by, by his successor in this, uh, Jean Boland. By expansion, I mean instead of just restoring the hagiographies found in the libraries of Belgium to their original state, Boland's project was to collect all available information on every saint, preface them with a statement on historical context and and validity of sources, and include notes of explanation on what all these things mean. Uh Uh-huh. Huge, huge undertaking. Yeah. So after 13 years of taking this job, eight years of which he had a full-time assistant, Boland uh, published two volumes covering all of the saint's... Celebrated in the month of January. Oh wow! Yes,
1: that that's a lot.
0: Certainly, certainly is. So the work was passed on and expanded from generation of researcher to generation of researcher, and the various authors who, who worked on this greater project are known as Bolandists because they're continuing the work of Jean Boland. Mm-hmm. The collected work is known as the Acta Sanctorum. You know, the, the acts. Of the saints. Yeah. It took 150 years to finish and publish the first 53 volumes, oh, gosh. which got them halfway through October. Oh my gosh. Speaking again of the Jesuit order as a whole, it was often controversial, both within and without the church. Uh, at times they were suppressed and forced underground, out of their libraries, delaying the acta sanctorum even further. Yeah. Which is why the final part of the December volume was officially published in the year 1940. Oh, my God. The work as a whole comes to 86 total volumes.
1: Oh, my God. They, they started this when? said 1603?
0: Boland himself started on it in, like, the the 1630s. Okay. But still. But still. Yeah, we're talking about 300 years plus. Yeah. So now we're getting into like a uh, uh, historical, scientific, please cite your sources kind of study of sainthood. Mm-hmm. And this is reflected in uh, uh, De Savorum de Beautificatione. Uh, <laughs> I'm murdering this <laughs> title. Et de Beatorum Canazitone. A work in five volumes by a man named Prospero Lambertini, published uh, between 1734
1: and 1738. Okay, that guy has the best
0: name. (laughs) Now, these five volumes uh, was the step-by-step process of how to canonize a saint Uh every single step of the way. Now, Lambertini is better known by the name Pope Benedict the Fourteenth.
1: Oh, not as good of a name.
0: Which he took uh, uh, in 1740, two years after finishing the, this five-volume set.
1: I much prefer Prospero Lambertini.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: All I could think of is some cool dude who's got his Lamborghini and a martini. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes.
0: And loves Shakespeare, as yes! it turns out. Yeah.
1: It just sounds like the best, like, cover name. Like, mm-hmm. oh, oh, uh, like in those movies when they look around to see, like, what Shakespeare book, martini, Lamborghini, this is my name.
0: What room are they hanging out in <laughs> that that's what they see?
1: It's a library uh-huh. that has a window that overlooks the parking lot and, and a is, bar.
0: And is holding some sort of benefit of it. Yes. Okay. <laughs>
1: Seriously. It,
0: it must be a pretty pricey uh, uh, benefit if people are driving their Lamborghinis here. Duh. It writes itself, frankly. Yeah. So, the process, as laid out in 1734, uh, is just a simple 20 step <laughs> process. Simple. It's so simple, it only takes five volumes and four years <laughs> to write out these 20 steps. As process of investigation and hearings and committees and debates for a person to go from "Hey, they were pretty cool to "Yes, they are a saint uh-huh. Each step required a meeting of church officials with its own set of restrictions and rules of procedure, mm-hmm. very, very Robert's rules of order, and got nothing on this sort of ceremonial law yeah uh canonization was relatively easy. Uh, once you got venerated, once you got beatified, it only required two proven miracles by someone who was already venerated. Only. The hard part was getting beatified. Yeah. At that point, after that, you just need two real deal, uh, unquestionable miracles. hmm Now, this process involved a position known as the promoter of the faith, who is more commonly known as the devil's advocate. Ah, Their job is to argue against the candidate for sainthood, uh, to present any conflicting evidence, to try to demonstrate that miracles were were fraudulent or or some manner of hoax, uh, to try to show a lack of the heroic virtue that someone must uh, uh, have demonstrated in their lives to be a confessor of the faith. Mm -hmm. Now, this speaks to the value of skepticism. If any untrustworthy figure is granted sainthood, it can be very dangerous. If someone is shown... To not have lived a saintly life, but you have the infallible Pope saying, yes, they are a saint, they are certainly in heaven and worthy of veneration, and can be invoked in the liturgy. Yeah. Who knows what kind of fallout that might cause? So we need to be very, very skeptical. Yeah. And go through this multi-year, (laughs) five-volume process, which includes someone whose job is to make this process really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the opposing side, the, the pro-sainthood advocate, uh, was the promoter of the cause. That That's their title. hmm Now, one of the steps was to make sure that there was no veneration of the candidate before they were beatified, which would be improper. Oh. Unless, of course, the candidate prefigured the formal process, in which case an uninterrupted cultist recognizing them as, as a worker of miracles... Would in fact be cause for canonization.
1: Okay.
2: Uh,
0: in fact, someone we've mentioned on the show before, uh, Hildegard of Bingen, was canonized by this process in the year 2012.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Hildegard of Bingen, the the creator of the uh, uh, morality play, yeah, and a composer of medieval music. Yes. So the current process that we use now was laid out. In uh, 1983, by Pope John Paul II, mm-hmm. it is very, very similar to the the post Renaissance process we, we just spoke about, but very streamlined. the The revision was to to keep all the facts, but lose all the ceremonial bureaucracy. Okay, we we don't need to have so much pomp and circumstance. We just need to know the life, the miracles, the the virtue. Mm-hmm. Uh, The promoter of the faith is still present, but less adversarial to go along with all of this. There is still a devil's advocate in the church hierarchy. If you want to get real, like, red string on a cork board, uh, like, that's not what it means. But if you want to go off about it, there technically is one. Have fun. Yeah. Like I promised at the beginning, that that brings us all the way to to how we talked about saints, what they mean, and how they are uh, declared hmm so dear what have you learned all of it all of it all of this mm-hmm.
1: yep when i when i say we were loosely roman catholic it was very loose mm-hmm. <laughs> i knew saints existed mm-hmm. i knew there was a process because of miracles the tv show <laughs> gotta investigate <laughs> these miracles how how uh how many books is it now because oh. they can, like, print it on a computer, it's a lot easier to get the font <laughs> small.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean,
1: it, it... Only one volume.
0: The the 68 was measuring in, like, folio volumes, because you got to, like, this started as a, a post-printing press, but, but certainly pre-modern printing work.
1: Okay. What are we condensed down to now? I don't
0: know. Because books aren't a standard length, it's not really a useful measurement. You could put it all in one book if you tried. Okay. Okay. You could say that about literally anything, though.
1: Slightly too big for your purse?
0: Mm, Whole lot. Way, way too many. If you throw it, it will hit someone's head. Way, way too many of of that size book. Okay. Something I learned in this is... uh, again c- coming from a, a non catholic christian background the idea of saints as intercessors is very very strange because we don't even use our our clergy as as advocates we just go straight to jesus mm-hmm. that that's the the whole protestant thing the, the methodist thing yeah and so the idea of saints is like uh is also seen in like anti catholic propaganda as a form of idolatry it, it is used uh, to To attack the the Roman Catholic Church, mm-hmm. and so to to learn how in their doctrine the, the difference, like saints are just people who have your back, and you know they're they're there, mm-hmm. and th- that was interesting to me, and how. Every part of Saints as They Are Now has some background in either the early church or, you know, the pre-modern church or the medieval church. And they all sort of gel together uh, into this this gestalt synthesis of all of these various threads of tradition and, and threads of church history to be one of the most visible things about Catholicism, especially as opposed to other popular denominations of Christianity.
1: Yeah. Moki is your favorite saint, Saint Francis? Because he's got your back. She's not religious.
0: What's the patron saint of naps?
1: That's Moki's saint.
0: That's Moki's saint. Yeah.
1: There's gotta be a patron saint of naps. There's one of everything. (laughs) Work-related stress!
0: Yeah. I I know my favorite saint. That's what I learned. (laughs) (laughs) So that we're gonna take a quick break and be back with letters and such. Welcome back, everybody. Hello. And like I mentioned, we have some letters to read. Yes. Our first letter comes in from Peter. Welcome back, Peter. Hello. And one thing Peter cannot live without is eyeglasses.
1: Yeah. I get that.
0: Peter's got some uh, heavy duty. uh, uh, Peter tops me. Yeah. (laughs) Peter's got some heavy duty prescription. So glasses are really, really necessary, even above other uh, possible corrective lens solutions. Yeah. Uh, As for the current prompt, favorite saint, that I wanted to hear from everybody, Peter has two contenders. One is St. Uh, uh as he is known in Scotland, because the name is a fun way to almost swear but not get in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. And the other is St. Guinefort, a French uh, uh, colloquial saint who is not officially canonized, uh, though there is a regular cultus around Guinefort. One day, Guinefort struck at a viper and wrestled it away to save the life of a child, uh, spilling blood and causing a ruckus in order to save the life of a child then when the child's father came by saw all the blood just slew greenford on the spot without without a single moment's pause for explanation Uh... later he realized his error buried greenford near the well and and a grove grew there mm. Now, this is the sort of story that you would expect to to lead to, you know, a a popular saint of the day. However, the church never approved of the veneration of Gwynfert, because Gwynfert is a dog. Oh! This is not the first time someone has uh, shared this story with us. I believe previously it was uh, in our episode... In
1: Soviet Space Dogs?
0: Yep, that's the one where the prompt was favorite dog in history. So there you go. Thanks, Peter.
1: Isaac writes in and answers several prompts... Uh, favorite superhero is uh, Taika Waititi's Thor because he's the best character in uh, the MCU, which yeah. I found out what that means at C2E2 this year. Yeah. Because people said it so many times.
0: The Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah,
1: it, t- it took me like 10 minutes to realize what the hell they were all talking about. <laughs> I was like, what? Got it. Yeah. Uh, favorite lie Miles Morales' Who's Morales? Uh, from Into the Spider-Verse.
0: There's so many good lines in that movie.
1: Also, uh, when Isaac got their first job, they lied and said they had an interview at this store, but they didn't, and the store was like, oh no, sorry, go to this other branch, and then that branch hired them. Nice. Object they could not live without would be glasses as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, favorite saint. There is a house apparently in Baltimore uh, that has a lot of fake- plants out front that their family has nicknamed uh our lady of the plastic flowers
0: it's as official as saint greenford yeah yeah uh
1: isaac also shares that uh in memphis the pink palace um which is a museum has a partial replica of the first piggly wiggly
0: oh so if
1: you want to see that go to memphis if
0: you ever want to see a part of a place that you still can't buy meat at there it is
1: (laughs) they might sell meat now
0: Yeah, but not at this one. No. (laughs) Thanks, Isaac. Ramona writes in, and her favorite saint is St. Dismas, purely because of his role in Uncharted 4. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Do you, do you know which saint St. Dismas is? No. Nope. Okay. So when uh, Jesus was being crucified, he was flanked uh, by, by two thieves, one on his left, one on his right. Mm-hmm. And one taunted him and the the other uh, uh, recognized his divinity. And so Jesus turned to that saint and said, you know, tonight uh, you, you will be in, in heaven. Mm-hmm. And so that is St. Dismas. Okay. Saint Dismas is the only person to be told, specifically by Jesus in the canonical gospels, that they are going to heaven. Oh. Mm-hmm. Very fancy. But Ramona would also like to bring up Saint Lucia Saint Lucia, who had her eyes gouged out before her execution. Again, the martyrs got gruesome. Yeah. There is a saint who's usually shown carrying his own removed skin, FYI.
1: Ew. Yeah. That gross.
0: To To represent her martyrdom, St. Lucia is depicted in art with her holding a tray with her own eyes on it, although she still has eyes in her head. So it's a little confusing.
1: Is it St. Lucia
0: or St. Lucia? I don't know because
1: i I had a kid who it was Lucia. Like I've heard like five different versions of how it's supposed to be said. and I'm sure it's all just based on like different languages and everything but I don't know what the go-to version should be.
0: I should not be taken as an authority on the pronunciation of anything, even my own native American English.
1: (laughs) What's the point of having you around then?
0: (laughs) (laughs) So thanks, Ramona.
1: One fine cat writes in, and their favorite saint is Agatha of Sicily. One of the things that was inflicted on her was having her breasts cut off with pinchers, and apparently she is most often depicted holding them on a platter. And on her feast day, people eat Agatha bread, which is small round fruit buns that are iced and topped with a cherry to, you know, look like things. Mm-hmm. That's weird.
0: You've never had to censor your buns before. No. <laughs> I censor my buns all the time. I, I don't want those getting out.
1: And apparently she's the patron saint of breast cancer, bakers, and earthquakes.
0: I'm curious about the earthquakes. I want to
1: know how the earthquakes falls into this. There Uh, there is an
0: off-color joke to be made, but we'll save that for the other podcast, I guess.
1: uh, One Fine Cat also uh, sent us a a show suggestion, which I very much like. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a a good one. Not going to tell the people what it is. (laughs) Thank you very much.
0: Thanks. Sam writes in for the first time in a while, and his favorite saint is the recently canonized John Henry Newman, a theologian of the 19th century who is also the namesake of the church where Sam has been working for nearly a decade. A a less recent uh, uh, prompt is the last book you read, and Sam's been doing most of his reading through audiobooks and and wants to talk about Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker, Uh, also the Tim Tebow CFL Chronicles, Uh, which is not a book, but it is a a book-length thing. Uh, A what-if comedy about Tim Tebow joining the Canadian Football League and destroying the sport uh, from the foundations up. Uh, Something Sam couldn't live without sunglasses related to uh, the the last two to write in on that point uh, because of a sunlight sensitivity. Me too! Yeah,
1: that no one's ever told me, but oh my god, I can't stand sunlight.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, darling, that, that's because you're a, a creature of pure evil. That's all.
1: Ugh, obviously,
0: you're you're a, a bride of Dracula. <laughs> I
1: cannot go outside. <laughs> There's a reason I have tan lines on my face every day of the year.
0: <laughs> but a, a non-prompt thing Sam wants to bring up is, is how nice it was to hear about the backstory behind Little Women. Sam has not only performed in uh, uh, the, the Broadway adaptation as Professor Bear about five years ago, but also put together a presentation uh, for a literature class on uh, Mark Adamo's opera of Little Women. Mm-hmm. So thank you for all of that in, in this uh, extra stuffed letter, Sam.
1: Yes. Thank you. Thomas writes in and has three suggestions. Which I'm not going to tell you. But thank you, Thomas.
0: Very punchy suggestion. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Thomas. Uh, Message writes in uh, to say that they've been listening for some time and that uh, uh, going through the backlog has been expedited through self-quarantine due to uh, COVID-19 uh, prevention. Keep it up. It's it's nice that we have listeners in Europe and you know we're we're glad to be there with you. We've uh basically in that boat now. We're getting into the early voluntary stages here in America, hopefully oh gosh, fingers crossed, it it doesn't get uh, as severe as it's been getting in other places. However, the places it's been getting are the places that have started with relatively lax voluntary stuff at this point, so I don't know how much faith I'd put in that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's St. Patrick's Day weekend in the United States.
0: So we're locked up at home while uh, we're, we're seeing the news take pictures of a whole lot of people not doing that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's not looking great.
0: But uh, for their most favorite saint, they nominate Oscar Romero, who is also recently canonized uh, a mere two years ago,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, a priest from El Salvador associated with liberation theology, a critic of social injustice and economic inequality, and the violence perpetuated by uh, the nation of El Salvador, who was assassinated on the orders of a far-right politician while performing mass in the year 1980. Now, that, that's an episode right there, frankly. Yep. Uh, thanks for writing, and, and thank, uh, thank you for your best wishes, and thank everybody for uh, uh, sharing your letters with us this week.
1: Yes. Uh, if you'd like to join these fine people, uh, you can also send us letters at historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com, or you can follow us on social media, Twitter, Instagram. We say Facebook, but not really, at History Honeys.
0: <laughs> I, it's true, we don't post anything there, but neither do y'all. So, like, we're playing chicken here. Who's going to be the first to do something on the Facebook page?
1: And I like to keep the Instagram surprising. You never know
2: what I'm going to. <laughs> you never to. know
0: what's going to happen there. Uh, <laughs> but that's right. Uh, we, are, we, we do love to hear from you how, however you choose, all the same.
1: Yes. darling. Do you, do you have a prompt for do, the people? Do
0: I have a prompt for, for the or next no, do, episode? I have a prompt
1: because you do just you did have an a episode. Prompt? That's
0: the question I'm more well, curious you're about. you're
1: not leading this on. So I'm like trying to keep things going because <laughs> your foot's falling asleep yes. and you're not talking. I'm, so uh, I'm
2: tingly. <laughs>
1: that's what I was like. Uh, so if you, uh, would like to send us a letter, you could definitely, like, tell us your show suggestions, comments, correction day corrections, animal pictures, or you could answer a prompt. Our prompt for the next episode is, what is your favorite old movie?
0: How old? Real old? Like, Edison still making pictures, old movie?
1: Let's go pre-70s. Okay. <laughs> How about that? Still a wide amount to choose from.
0: Yeah. (laughs) That sounds like fun. I'm excited to hear about all of those. See, we we already talked about the socials, so we can skip straight to begging for reviews.
1: Review us. (laughs) validate us Mm -hmm. don't leave bad ones
0: (laughs) and you can leave all that positive validation uh, at apple podcasts or or whatever other podcatcher gives you the option
1: make me feel good about myself
0: you can also tell a friend i mean we're we're moving into an age of uh digital socialization taking the place of face-to-face for at least a, a few weeks while we see how, how these things shake out.
1: Now's a good time to get your friends on board on listening to our podcast so you have something to talk about.
0: hmm mm-hmm. FaceTime each other. Listening parties. Remote listening parties.
1: Exactly. You know what everyone should do on a Tuesday. In addition to vote, mm-hmm. everyone should tune into the Dropkick Murphys live stream of their concert. Yes. all at the same time. I am. It'd be actually kind of hilarious.
0: <laughs> I am really excited and really like heartened, I guess, by the move of of a lot of these performing arts groups to do empty shows but live stream for free. Yes. Okay, how many people got to see the Dropkick Murphys on uh, St. Patrick's Day last year? One theater's worth of people. Yeah. Now. Whole world. Yep. Uh, the Metropolitan Opera doing free opera streams. Yes. For for their performances.
1: Other things I've. Uh, th- the, I mean, there's the whole world th-
0: with free yeah. internet access. Yes. To be fair, but that's a whole lot more than one opera house can hold.
1: I will say, I was reading something that was released by um, our aldermen that um, apparently Xfinity is opening up their Wi-Fi mm-hmm. to non-customers. Hey. So you don't have to be a customer, you just have to like go on their website and if you need internet, you can like lock into their Wi-Fi if Wi-Fi is available within your community. So that's kind of cool.
0: That's pretty cool. It's
1: like for the next 60 days, I think. Mm -hmm. So random thing with the internet. If you're looking for other things, I guess, to like do, uh, I just saw that like Ken Burns baseball series is going to be available for free in the whole on Mm pbs.com. Some local theaters are actually streaming their productions too.
0: Fantastic. Which is cool. When I was planning this episode, I didn't see coming what this week would be.
2: <laughs> no one
0: did. So that's why it's not exactly related. Well, and also doing something exactly related might be anxiety-inducing all the same.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, but I will take this post-episode uh, uh, moment to, to just say that e- even though it is best practice to not be near one another, there are still ways to care for one another. There are still ways to support one another at a metaphorical arm's length and a literal more than that. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm definitely encouraged by the, the way that this crisis is inspiring people to come together, to support the least of us, to recognize the uh, uh, fragility of people in the gig economy, in the service sector, people who do not have reliable housing or food uh, to, to see how this crisis is disproportionately affecting them even before the the chance of infection is.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I, I would encourage everyone who has a, a, a little bit of comfort to give uh, in whatever way that is to please, please do so. Yeah. So thanks for listening to our goof up show about uh, St. Patrick and all of his friends. <laughs> yeah Uh, (laughs) so uh, we'll see you in two weeks and heck we might get bored enough to throw up something else in the meantime
1: (laughs) it depends on how much I actually have to work remotely
0: (laughs) we'll see what happens when we get there Yep. with that I'm Grant I'm Lena and history's better with with your honey. honey